me today to the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation and verse 8. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Then another passage of Scripture which we have looked at in recent weeks, found in Psalm chapter 76 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, and then Psalm chapter 76 and verse 10. This will be the 54th message in our series dealing with all of the counsel of God as revealed in his word, and will be the eighth in the series dealing with the decrees or the purposes of God which God formulated and settled in his mind before he ever began to create the heavens and the earth and all that was therein. When we speak of the decrees of God, we're talking about that which he purposed to do before he actually started creating, before he actually started going anywhere, what he had settled in his mind that he would bring to pass. Now, before we read these verses today and deal with another subject in this subject of the decrees of God, it is important, I think, that we take a brief review as to where we have uh, come from and what we have already uh, learned so that we may be able to use today's message to build upon that. First, by the decrees or the purposes of God, they involve his eternal purposes to glorify the person and work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, these purposes are based upon God's infinite wisdom so that whatever comes to pass in time does so because infinite wisdom has screened it and has approved it as being the most desirable. Thirdly, the chief reason or end of why God does what he does is the glorification of his own nature and his attributes in his Son. Now, fourth, all actions which occur in time, major actions and minor actions, good actions and evil actions, which come to pass come within the control of God's foreordained plan so that God is never taken by surprise by anything which occurs and never sees his purposes frustrated by the actions of his creatures. Fifthly, these decrees or purposes involve the will of God, which is revealed to be a twofold will. They are, number one, God's revealed will, which comprises our duty to him, and his secret will, which cannot be known by man until God is pleased to reveal it. Now, he has purposed when in his secret will to allow or permit many things which are evil to occur which at the same time are opposed to his commanded or revealed will. Yet 
He controls and overrules all of these actions so that good comes from them. People ask sometimes, are you in the will of God? Now listen carefully what this means. We may be in or out of God's revealed will, what he has commanded. You may be disobedient or obedient today and therefore either be in or out of his will but we're never out of his secret, decretive purpose for us. Because all things are controlled by God to work for his own glory. So realize the twofold will. That which he's revealed for us to be our duty, we find in the pages of the book, and we may be in that will or out of that will, but we're never on the outside of God's secret purposes which he has purposed in our lives. Now, the scriptures reveal that God's sovereign foreordination of all events does not interfere with man's responsibility and his free agency. This includes what we studied last week, what is called an antinomy or a contradiction in human logic. How can God be absolutely in control and foreordaining all that comes to pass, and yet how can man then be responsible? That is a contradiction to our own human mind, but yet it nevertheless is a revealed truth. And if we deny either, we cannot do so without departing from God's revealed truth in the Scriptures. Now today we want to deal with a second objection to the decrees or purposes of God. And there are problems with these. And so we're now dealing with the objections. And that is, does God's foreordination of all events make him to be the author of sin? If God, Pastor, has foreordained all things which come to pass, does that then make God the author of sin? Now, we want to deal with that question today because it is a legitimate question. And we want to try to see what the Scriptures have revealed, and then what they have not revealed, then we leave in his own wisdom and understanding. First, let's look at our two texts that we encourage you to turn to, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. We read, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Here we see in the purpose of God that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. It does not mean he actually was. Jesus did not die until some almost 2,000 years ago uh, outside of Jerusalem there on Golgotha's hill. But in the purpose of God, God decreed that he was to die or to be slain. I may purpose what I'm going to do Wednesday. I may purpose that I'm going fishing Wednesday. Now, I purpose that right now. And I wish the weather would warm up so that I could uh, get back out there again. But I'm not really going. But let's say I purpose here at 1130 Sunday morning that I'm going fishing Wednesday. I haven't gone fishing yet. But Wednesday comes, I go. I have fulfilled what I purpose back here, you see. Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
God purposed to do something, but he didn't actually do it until about 2,000 years ago. Okay, now we understand that. Now, this involves something, though, that if Jesus was going to be slain, then this presupposes something else that had to take place prior to his actually dying. In Psalm chapter 76 and verse 10, the text we've looked at several times, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, or the sin of man. The remainder of wrath shall thou restrain. Now, putting these two texts together, we want to build on this statement then that we propose today. Does God's foreordination of all things make him to be the author of sin? We read in the Bible that Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. But we do not read in the Bible as a revealed truth that God is the author of sin. In fact, he is opposed to sin and he has no actions or no temptation does he uh, present to a person to sin. This is brought out in the book of James. But yet there is a problem here. There is a mystery. How can God foreordain something without being the author or the cause of that? Now, sin, we must realize, was included in God's plan. It is imperative that we understand this. Because we read that Jesus was the Lamb slain from where? The foundation of the world. Now, we must then see why was Jesus Christ slain. Now, back here, before there's ever a world created, before God ever speaks, and there is nothing in existence... We see here from this text, God had purposed to slay his son on the cross. Now, that is a settled purpose. Why did he purpose to do that? Well, we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 20, something about why Jesus died on the cross. Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood. And that blood is described as the blood of an eternal or everlasting covenant. It was not a spur-of-the-moment thing that God decided to do 2,000 years ago. It had been purposed before the foundation of the world. So the purpose to, for God the Father to shed the blood of His Son was something that was settled before the foundation of the world. Well, why was this blood shed? We go back to the book of John now, chapter 1 and verse 29. Here is a statement which is given to us by John the Baptist when Jesus Christ came upon the scene, this lamb. In John 1, verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now follow me in this particular logical sequence. Jesus, as the Lamb, died for sin. Is that right? Yes? Okay. Then that presupposes that since this Lamb was to die before the foundation of the world in God's purpose, 
and he was to die for sin, then it also presupposes that sin was going to take place. Is that not right? It presupposes that man was going to sin, and therefore God was going to send a Savior to deliver man from his sin. Now, when we see that, then we see there's no way of escaping the fact that sin was included in God's plan. If there had been no sin, there would have been no need for Jesus to have died, to have died on the cross. And yet he was purposed to die before the foundation of the world. Then that meant that God had purposed to allow man to sin before he ever actually created him. Sin was not something that caught God by surprise in the Garden of Eden. Sin was not something that caught God off guard there in the Garden. God did not create man and then without an awareness of what was going to take place in his life. But does that make God the author of man's sin? How can God foreordain that Adam shall sin and yet not be the cause and the author of that sin? And he does so through what is called his permissive will or his permissive decree. God did not coerce, tempt, or force Adam to sin. Yet at the same time, God had decreed to create Adam with as a free agent and place him in circumstances in which he knew that Adam would act as a sinner against him. Yet this does not make God the cause and the author of Adam's sin or your sin and mine. We are responsible beings for what we do. And what we do, we do freely. And yet at the same time we are controlled by God in that God can either allow us to sin or he can restrain us from sinning. God did not restrain Adam from sinning. But God was not the cause or the author of Adam's sinning. Now then, Pastor, then why did God allow Adam to sin? Well, you're always asking those hard and difficult questions. <laughs> so we'll have to try to deal with them. Uh, maybe you're not asking them, but I certainly have. And I've wrestled with these things for many, many years and probably will continue to do so as long as God leaves me here in this life and we look through a glass darkly. But we want to see that God, while permitting man to sin, nevertheless has a purpose. And that purpose is to reveal the glory and grace of his, Lord, of his Son, Jesus Christ. What's the song? He looked beyond my faults and saw what? My needs. God looked beyond the Garden of Eden and the sin of Adam to the cross of Jesus Christ, revealing his grace there. No cross can there be unless there be a fall in the garden. No mercy can be bestowed except man be permitted or allowed to exercise the freedom of his own agency. 
Now let's see an example of this in the Bible of how God can allow the evil will of man to act and yet God can control it and bring good out of it. Would you not say this morning that there was something good that came out of the cross of Christ? Would you not agree with that? Did not great good come from the death of Jesus Christ? That good could not have come, beloved, had not, first of all, God permitted an evil to come into existence. And so we can see this in the life of Joseph. Let's go back to the 50th chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. If you remember the account there, Joseph had his brothers, and they had an evil heart. They were jealous against him, and they sold him into Egyptian slavery. And now many things have occurred. Several years have transpired. There's a famine in the land of Canaan, and all of his brothers have to go down into Egypt, and they think that Joseph has long been dead. But when they get down there, they've discovered that Joseph is next in line to the rulership of Egypt. He's next under Pharaoh. And they have to answer to their own brother for food. If they get any food, they have to get it from Joseph, the one whom they hated and sold at an earlier time. Well, what's Joseph going to do? And did God have any hand in this? Let us let uh, the writer of the book of Genesis tell us, beginning in verse 15 and verse uh, of the 50th chapter. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and will certainly require us all the evil that we did unto him. Now notice they acknowledge that they did evil unto their brother. What they did to Joseph was sinful. It was wrong. And they acknowledged that. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, so shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, and for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, am I in the place of God? Now get the picture. Here's the brother who was sold as a prisoner. He's on the throne now. And now here's all of these brothers before him acknowledging they did evil. What does Joseph reply to his brothers now? Verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, do you see that, beloved? Joseph's brethren did what they wanted to do, and it was evil. It was wrong. It was opposed to that which God had commanded in his law. Not to take the name of a brother in vain. Not to steal his rights and his, and his privileges. But yet, was God working in that evil act? Yes. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God permitted his brothers to act the way they did, but God was in absolute control of that all the time. And years later, he vindicated the reason why he permitted man to act the way he did back here 
by bringing glory and goodness out of it. Why does God allow Adam and you and I to sin when there is suffering connected with that and death? Why does he not restrain all sin which he says he can do? The remainder of wrath will I restrain. Why does he not do this? Beloved, there is coming a time in which that after the Garden of Eden has passed, the cross of Jesus Christ will vindicate all of the reasons why God allows and permits evil to enter his moral universe. Now then, let's give another example in daily life. We've given a biblical example of how God brings good out of sin, yet without being the author of it. God did not force Joseph's brethren to hate him. They did that freely of their own willingness. But yet God controlled that for his own purposes, which he afterward revealed. Now notice, Joseph's brethren could not have sat down and have justified their actions at that time by saying, well, this is what God has purpose for us to do. Any more than you and I can sit down and justify our disobedience to God by saying, well, God must have intended this. We cannot know God's secret purposes until they have already occurred. And we can never justify our own disobedience to his revealed will. These brethren acknowledged their wrongdoing. Now, from daily life, let's suppose a ruler or a king sets up a kingdom, and he has a lot of subjects in that kingdom. And he commands that no one is to commit treason against the kingdom. That's the law of the land. Anyone that tries to commit treason against the kingdom is going to be guilty of an offense. And they're going to be judged. Yet at the same time, that same king permits an individual to commit treason against his own kingdom. Now notice what the king is doing. He is allowing a person to commit a wrong act even though he has commanded for people not to commit those acts. God placed Adam in the garden and he revealed to him Stay away from the tree, or else you're going to be guilty of treason. But God permitted and allowed Adam to commit treason against the king of heaven. Now, why would a king do this? Why would a ruler allow a person to commit treason when he had commanded him not to? For one reason, which would be very apparent in order to show the other subjects in his kingdom that his law demands justice. And if that person disobeys and commits treason against the throne, then he is certain to be brought before the king and judged, and all the subjects of the land will say, you're right, you're right, he's deserving of of judgment. He attempted to overthrow the good of the kingdom. Now, when that individual comes before the king, can he then say, Well, king, I'm not responsible for this act of treason because you didn't restrain me from doing it. You should have put me in a cage where I couldn't have got out here and done this. 
Would that hold up in a court of law? Hmm? Those of you that are judges, would that hold up in your court? If someone, if you set a law, thou shalt not uh, break the speed limit. And somebody breaks the speed limit, I do. Let's say I come into your court and I've broken the speed limit of your kingdom. And you ask, how do you plead, Jim Gables? Well, I plead not guilty. Well, why? The radar showed 65 miles an hour and the law says 55. I'm not guilty. Well, why not, Jim Gables? You didn't put a highway patrolman behind me with a chain to keep me from going over 55 miles an hour. Now, what's that judge going to say? Uh-uh. You're not getting by with that. You have the freedom. You have the knowledge. You have the awareness and the wisdom to know what the law of the land was. You're not going to come in this court and try to get by and excuse your own disobedience because I did not restrain you by putting the police car behind you and holding you back from doing what I had revealed was wrong. So, beloved, we cannot excuse our own sin, and this can also be likened into another example of the sun and darkness. Now, the sun has come out today, and it's sure good to see that after all these many, many cloudy days. When the sun comes up, what happens to the darkness? It flees, does it not? When the sun sets at evening tide, what occurs then? Darkness encompasses the face of the earth, anyway, here in our part of the land. Now, is there anyone that will then say that the sun is the cause of the earth being dark? Hmm? Just because the sun refuses to shine, do we then blame the sun for the earth being dark? No. The darkness is already there. And when the sun exercises its own purpose to shine, the darkness is dispelled, but when it restrains its purpose from shining, darkness is there. But the cause of the darkness is not to be blamed upon the sun, it's upon the darkness itself. Suppose the sun shines upon a dunghill, and there's a terrible odor comes from it. Do we blame the sun, or do we blame the dunghill for the odor? Hmm? Which do we? But we don't blame the sun. The smell is coming out from the dunghill. Now let's liken this unto a real life experience then. In John, the third chapter, and verses 19 and 20, let's ask the question, is God responsible for the darkness of sin which exists in the souls of men? Is he responsible? John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world, the sun has come up, and men love darkness 
rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now here God has sent his Son as the light into the world. But what does the world do with that? The men in the world love darkness rather than light because their own nature is evil. The question then, is God responsible for the sinful nature that is in man when at the same time he is given light? Is God responsible for leaving men to what they want? They love darkness. They do not want light. Is God responsible for that? I don't think anyone that if that was brought into a court of justice would charge God with being unjust when he leaves men to what they want. The light is not the cause of the darkness. The cause of the darkness is in themselves. Now, God may either elect to lead them to what they want, or he can regenerate with an extra measure of light and change their own darkness and translate that person from out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, and that's called grace. But there's not any person that can then argue with God, God, you're unjust with me, because God says that you love darkness rather than light, you did not want light, therefore I was not obligated to give you more light. So man will be found guilty in God's court, and God will be vindicated. God may permit man to sin, but God is not the author and cause of sin. Well, Pastor, you never have answered the question yet, why did God purpose to include sin in his plan of creation? All right, give it to you quickly. In the Bible, in the first book, we find a paradise recorded. In the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, we find another paradise recorded there. The first paradise was called Eden. The last paradise is called the new heaven and the new earth. God created man and placed him in the first paradise to show his creation what the ability of man's free will can and would do. He created the second paradise, the new heaven and the new earth, to reveal to his creation the glory of what the grace of his own free will can and will do. Now, we're always as man, we're arguing for our free will. Now, you want to know what our free will got us? Look at the Garden of Eden. That reveals what the free will of man can and will do. And God permitted man to reveal what he would do there. But the second garden of paradise reveals what the grace of God does in Jesus Christ. 
and that cannot be revealed until the first paradise is brought into existence. Man is allowed to sin of his own free will, and then God, out of his own free grace, restores a large remnant of that fallen race of humanity and takes them into the new heavens and the new earth. One cannot take place without the other. Now, beloved, you think carefully. What has man's free will ever done? Hmm? What has it done? Every time God lets man have his own will, man runs immediately to the pot of sin and eats of it. But the free grace of God is that which restrains that will and brings it into conformity to what Jesus Christ willed when he was here on earth. Not my will, but thine be done. Oh, how we ought to pray, not for God to give us more freedom of will, but for God to so tune our hearts, Brother Powell, as we say in the song, to tune our wills to sing his grace. That's what we need, beloved. Not more freedom of will. We need more grace to enable us to freely do the will of God. Well, then what should be our attitude toward sin? Now, this raises a very good question. I'll deal with this, and then we close. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, If God, in order to reveal his Son, permitted the free will of man to sin, then what then should be our attitude toward this matter of obedience or disobedience of God? Paul deals with this question in Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul has just concluded his great teaching upon free justification. He said in Romans 5.21, That as sin hath reigned unto death, now there's that free will got us, even so grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what grace does for us. What we lost in our own free will God restores to believers through his own free grace. Now a question is then raised. Well then, since man had to sin in order to glorify the grace of God, shall I now, Paul, go out and I sin a great amount in order that God's grace might abound even more? Shall I just go out and live it up and disobey every known command of God that there is in order to glorify the grace of God even more? Since sin had to exist before God's grace could be glorified, then if I sin a whole lot, then won't that just glorify God a whole lot more? Now notice how the apostle answers, God forbid, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Shall I rebel against God's commanded, revealed will for me to live like Jesus Christ 
in order to fulfill some secret purpose which I do not know, God forbid, beloved. No, we can never justify our disobedience and blame it on God's secret purpose. Now, Adam tried to do it. You ever try to do it, husbands? You know what Adam said? You know what he said, Dick? The woman that you gave to be with me, she's the one that made me do it. I'm not responsible. Now, I know you commanded me to stay away from that tree. But you gave me a wicked woman. And you must have intended by giving me a wicked woman that I disobey that, so therefore I'm not responsible. <laughs> if we'll look at our lives under a microscope, we'll find ourselves being guilty of that many times of trying to justify known disobedience to God by saying, oh well, God will bring good out of it. What does Paul say? Oh, God forbid. God forbid that anyone would go out and live in disobedience to God with the intent that of glorifying God. What a horrible thought! God forbid it. Only God can bring good out of sin. You and I cannot do that. Therefore, we are not justified in doing wrong just because God has intended to glorify the grace of His Son through the lives of fallen sinners. Is God the author of sin? No. Is God the author of goodness and faith and grace? Yes, He is. Is God the author of anybody perishing? No. People perish because of their own love of darkness. Is God the cause of any person entering into the next paradise? Absolutely, yes. No one enters into the new heaven and the new earth without the grace of God working in and upon them. Therefore, we give the glory to God that if anybody perishes, it's because God has merely permitted you to go your own way and love sin more than, dark, than light. He's the author and finisher of our faith, but he is not the author and finisher of this terrible thing known as sin and disobedience. But yet, in order to glorify his Son, Sin and disobedience must be allowed to be permitted in order that grace can reign through Jesus Christ. Now I ask you in closing, what's reigning in your life today? Is it king sin or king grace? Hmm? What's reigning there? You know what's reigning there. Do you find yourself loving the grace of God and delighting in the will of God as Jesus did? And when you rebel against that will, it just humbles you and breaks you and says, Oh God, give me more grace to be like your son. Or do you find yourself living a flippant life, not really caring one way or another whether you are obedient or disobedient to God? 
Are you living according to the dictates of your own free will, or are you living according to the dictates of God's own free grace? You know that this morning. Let's stand together.